electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, investing legend Paul Tudor Jones and his market outlook. Things are absolutely bat s crazy. The billionaire wealth manager talks inflation, the Fed, and where he's putting his money. Well, I'm going to watch the Fed on Wednesday. If they treat these numbers, if they treat them with nonchalance, I think it's just a green light to bet heavily on every inflation trade. Plus, Jones's bet on Bitcoin's certainty and his plan for rebuilding NYC as founder of the Robin Hood Foundation. The way we're going to rebuild New York, or the way we're going to bring this city back, is we're going to start in the trenches with the people who were hurt the most in this pandemic. That big interview, but first, a report from Geneva and a very pricey ticket to ride. Do you think people are paying to hang out with Jeff Bezos, or do you think that they're paying to go to space? It's Monday, June 14th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cuba, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew. Joe is out today, but Andrew is reporting live from Tudor Investment Corp in New York City. And Andrew, you've got a big guest coming up today. What's going on? Nice haircut, by the way. Uh, We're going to spend some time together. We've got a lot of big guests today, Mm -hmm. but uh, we're going to spend some time together with Paul Tudor Jones, get his thoughts uh, on all things markets, inflation, of course, the big question, uh, whether it's transitory or whether this is the new normal. Uh, We'll uh, get into Bitcoin. Of course, he actually bought into Bitcoin in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, he was one of the first, as you know, uh, to spend time with us in the middle of Davos talking about the pandemic. And then he called it right uh, when he came on with us uh, a couple months after in the midst of what seemed like that almost hellish downturn uh, and said that we would be uh, flying and back flying. And if you look at where the S&P is today, Becky, Boy, is it flying. So here we are. Yeah, flying a little bit more than the numbers of TSA show us just yet. But yes, we are looking at these markets. S&P actually closing at a 28th record just for this year uh, on Friday. President Biden wrapping up his trip to the G7 summit and shifting gears as he's now in Brussels to meet with NATO allies, also to have a face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Our own Eamon Javers is on the ground in Geneva and joins us now. And Eamon, a lot of people watching this, especially the Putin part of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. That's all coming later in the week, Becky. And what we're looking at now is the transition between the diplomatic piece of this trip over the weekend with the G7. And now the president has just arrived at NATO headquarters in Brussels, where just a few seconds ago he was meeting with Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general, uh, discussing the military alliance with the United States and Europe. So some important military developments there. Over the weekend at the G7, they agreed to some important items. And the G7 was very much about who wasn't there as much as it was about the seven nations who were there. A lot of the focus on China, Russia, and of course, former President Donald Trump's absence 
was noted particularly. Take a look at some of the takeaways from the G7 as you look at the agreement here to provide 870 million vaccine doses directly to poorer countries over the next year. They agreed to endorse a global minimum tax. They agreed to urgently identify and disrupt ransomware criminal networks. They called on China to respect human rights, fundamental freedoms, and Hong Kong's autonomy. And they reaffirmed a call on Russia to stop its destabilizing behavior. The message from President Biden was that this is a turn away from the America first priorities of his predecessor, more toward an American engagement with the world. Here's what he said. The lack uh, of uh, participation in the past and and full engagement um, was noticed significantly, not only by the leaders of those countries, but by the people in the G7 countries. And uh, America's back in the business of uh, leading the world alongside nations who share our most deeply held values. And one of the most intriguing developments over the weekend was this idea of a global fund to sort of counteract the Chinese development fund around the world, that Belt and Road Initiative in which the Chinese government is enacting its own sort of Marshall Plan for the globe. The G7 countries agreed to some a formulation for a similar fund in which the global democracies would finance development in poorer countries around the world. No details yet on just how that's going to be unveiled. So we'll wait for the particulars on that, but an effort here to sort of counterbalance some of that Chinese uh, influence around the world, guys. Back over to you. I, mean, I, I guess the biggest question is, this is a lot of big initiatives, a lot of big talk that they've got here, but how much of it do you think is likely to actually come through? Things like the global minimum tax, this crackdown on cyber, um, what they've said about both Russia and China. Is there a follow-through with that, or is it enough just to be making these statements at this point? Will it have an impact? Yeah, that, that is the real question here, Becky. A lot of these agreements are sort of words on paper for right now. We don't have the details of the financing agreements uh, in terms of that, what they're calling Build Back Better for the World, or B3W, to sort of counteract the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. We don't have the specifics on that, and the agreements, uh, you know, hammered out in detail. Uh, and in terms of the pushback on ransomware and the Russians, you know, that is also words on paper, and we'll wait to see how the president's meeting here in Geneva with Vladimir Putin goes and whether they can put some force and some muscle behind it. But what the Democratic nations are trying to do here is assert uh, that they are acting in concert, that there is unity here. The president has painted all of this as a sort of an opportunity for the world to see the Democratic countries coming together and choose now between a Democratic leadership of the world uh, and sort of an autocratic leadership of the world. The president has said this is the moment now where the Democratic countries are going to be pushing back against those autocratic governments, uh, particularly Russia and China. So a lot of the specifics, you're right, Becky, still to come. Is this your first business trip, Eamon? First business trip since COVID. I, actually, I was in Tampa uh, last week on a story, so this is my first overseas trip. And, and I got to tell you, it's it's a little bit different traveling the world in, in the COVID era. A lot of masks everywhere, a lot of different permissions to get through the countries. There was an incredible amount of paperwork uh, that our producer, Bria Cousins, handled spectacularly in order to get <laughs> us into the country here. Uh, a lot of challenges and hurdles with this overseas travel now. Uh, but you do get the sense that the world is coming back to normal. People are moving about, uh, and the staffs at the airlines were thrilled to see customers uh, back in the seats again. All right. Well, it's good to see you there. It's good to have you, and we will check in with you um, throughout this trip. Thanks, Eamon. You bet. 
we've got a great story for you because we have a winner. I know it's not Becky Quick. I know it's an anonymous person, but it's not Becky in this instance because of her views about going to space. But an anonymous bidder has won the auction to join Jeff Bezos and his brother on the first Blue Origin trip to space. Almost 7,900 people bid for that spot, well, with the winner paying more than $28 million for the 11-minute space trip. Uh, the winner will also have to pay a 6% buyer's commission, bringing the total cost to almost $30 million. That's what we I can confirm that's story. not the you, buyer's Becky. buyer's commission? Right? No, it's definitely not me. I, I don't think I'd do it if you paid me $28 million. But the buyer's commission is the part I didn't get. What is this, like the... Like when you find an apartment in New York City before the pandemic, you know, you'd have to pay that that additional renters uh, finders fee, a buyer's commission. It's, it's a little bit like an auction. No, it's like an auction at Sotheby's. Same thing. You, you know, when you buy a piece of art at Sotheby's or Christie's, uh, you don't just right. pay the pay whatever the bid, final bid is. You actually often pay commission on top of it for the, for and the it's auction not typically house. Taken. What was the auction house in this scenario? Where does that money go? It's a very good question. Uh, we're going to have to uh, do a little little more reporting on that. I don't know the answer. And then the other question I had is, are you buying a seat on the spaceship and time with Bezos more than just the 11.6 seconds of the flight or the 11.6 minutes of the flight? Are you buying more time with him? Do you get to spend the whole several days training with him leading up to that time? That's a great question. I imagine you have to train. Now, whether you tr- train with Jeff Bezos or not, I don't know. And I imagine the 11.6 seconds, no matter what, still turns into at least a couple minutes. of hours because. Yeah. But I, but I assume uh, right the, the 11 minutes in the. But I imagine there's at least an hour or two before and after that. Uh, so I, I don't know. You think people are? That's interesting. Do you think people are paying to hang out with Jeff Bezos, or do you think that they're paying Both. to go to space? Go to space with Jeff Bezos. Both? I guess the time you spend with him ahead of time depends on how annoying you are. <sighs> Except that once, except for for Jeff's purposes, he's stuck next to whoever it is when they're up in space. And if for any reason they can't get down in 11 minutes, it could be a, it could be a long while. So yeah, depending on who won the auction. Anyway, also new what's this the morning. most what's the most go ahead. What's the most that anyone's ever paid to have lunch with Buffett? Oh, that's a good question. It's millions of dollars, um, but it's not 28 million dollars. This is this is a whole new ball game, like up in space, doing this from the from the ride as itself. Well, um, we've also now, got now this- now Buffett's going to have to up his game, right? I mean, for next year, <laughs> maybe up his game and up his uh, the the place that they're going to be doing any of these things. Coming up on Squawk Pod, investing legend Paul Tudor Jones, his Bitcoin bets, his inflation bets and his response to the Reddit revolution. What happens if the Reddit crowd ever gets into commodities? God forbid if the bullies, the financial markets, ever were to take it on, for instance, like retail did back in the 70s. That conversation is right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Three, two, one, up and Becky, cue. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. And this morning, Andrew is at the offices of Tudor Investment Corporation in downtown New York City. Andrew? Hey, thanks, Becky. Let's get straight to our very special guest of the hour. I don't know if he likes when I call him legendary, but legendary <laughs> trader Paul Tudor Jones <laughs>, laughs every time we say it. Founder and chief investment officer of Tudor Investment Corporation. He's also, of course, the chairman of Just Capital and the founder and a board member of Robinhood Foundation. Uh, Paul, we're going to talk uh, about the upcoming Robinhood conference uh, happening this Wednesday in just a couple of minutes. But first, let's start with the markets. And I actually want to start with the Fed because we've had a big debate, uh, sort of a raging debate about inflation, uh, whether it's transitory, whether there's a new normal here, and uh, what the, uh, the macro, uh, legendary macro trade uh-huh. thinks of all of this. Well, I think this Fed meeting could be the most important Fed meeting in Jay Powell's career, certainly the most important Fed meeting of the, uh, of the past four or five years. And the reason why is because we've had so much incoming data that challenges both their mission and their model. So how they react to that will be extraordinarily important and will be signaling, I think, for investors as to how they should deal with their portfolios going forward. You have to remember that the Fed right now is really operating with a single mandate. Their stated goal is maximizing employment. And you can almost see how important that is to them and just the way that they view the difference between employment and inflation. With employment, they want to see outcomes. We want to see material gains in employment. With inflation, they tell you it's transitory. Trust our forecast. It's an intellectual incongruity that risks damaging their credibility if they're wrong on their forecast. So this meeting is really important because you've had a variety of data points that come in that, again, challenge both their mission uh, and their model. So do you believe that, it, that, in, that the inflation we're seeing, if it is inflation at all, is transitory? Do you believe that their credibility is at risk because their model is wrong? Well, first of all, you have to, it, it's somewhat disingenuous to say that inflation is transitory, for them to say inflation is transitory, because if we look at the, the past episodes where inflation has been transitory, it was with reaction function to a Federal Reserve Board with a completely different mandate, right? They had a dual mandate. This Fed is focused primarily on maximizing employment. So how can you use historical antecedents to sit there and predict the future when you've got a different reaction function now than the Feds of the past have had? Uh, A great example of that would be, take 2013. 2013, when they first began to talk about taper, Inflation was one and a half 
1.8%. CPI was 1.5% versus 4.9% now. Uh, and at that time, you had 6.3 million people in, uh, unemployed, more than there were job offers. So today, we have the same number of people unemployed, 9.3 million people, as we have job offers. They're exactly equal. So if we go back to 2013, and we look at both inflation, which is much greater today than it was then, and we look at the number of unemployed relative to the number of opportunities to be employed, you had a situation that's completely different than now. And yet that Fed in 2013 was concerned enough about inflation to begin to taper, which they ultimately did, obviously, the beginning of 2014. So when you say today that inflation is going to be transitory and you compare the taper to 2013, they're miles apart. They're miles apart. When you look at the Fed today and the Fed back then, you wonder how can you have such wildly different policy views on what constitutes uh, the right levels for employment, the right levels for inflation. How can you have that within an eight-year time frame? It's, it's almost like a split personality, and you wonder why Bitcoin has a $2 trillion market cap and goals at $1,865 an ounce. And the reason why is because you had this dichotomy in policy that, again, questions, questions, the institutional credibility of something. I want to talk about Bitcoin and gold in just a second, but if you were Jay Powell, right now, you would do what? Well, you know, traditional economic orthodoxy would call for an immediate course correction. It would call for, okay, we've had two hugely material uh, sets of data that have occurred since the last meeting. We've had two CPI increases, they're the highest in 50 years. And more importantly, those CPI increases were outside the Fed's model forecast. So that's, I know when we run our models at Tudor, our systematic models, uh, when you see something that's out of bounds, you immediately review that model. You immediately, first, we typically, when something's out of bounds, we typically cut capital to it. Um, the second piece of data that came in that's, that's um, really, really material is the, the Joel's job offers, mm -hmm. which is now, again, also the highest in 50 years. That's important because if you take the trajectory right now of job offers and extrapolate that for the next four months and extrapolate uh, uh, the, the same type of increases we've been having in, in, in employment for the past four months, and by October, you'll have uh, a surplus of job offers to unemployed that will be exactly the same as January of 2020 before the pandemic hit. So again, if you think about what they could do, they could say, they could declare victory and say, we've won. We're gonna be where we were pre-pandemic by October. And yet at the same time right now, we are instead quantitative easing and juicing in an economy that's already red hot. The, the way I like to think about Fed policy right now, imagine a World War II Sherman tank. On top, you've got this 
massive weapon, which in this case, in the case of the Fed, is monetary policy. But your field of vision is this narrow slit in the front. And the only thing that you see is you see maximizing employment. I really think that Fed listens to her, they did in May 2020, had a profound effect on them. The, the problem with that is that on one side, you've got these inherent dangers, right? You've got inflation on this side and you've got financial stability on this side. So when you're looking through that slit, you allow these two to all of a sudden grow in both threat level and importance. And I think that's what's happening right now. Okay, couple that with what the Biden administration and potentially Congress want to do or not on infrastructure spending and other spending. Do you think they should take their foot off of, of that gas pedal? Well, look, you've got the craziest mix of fiscal and monetary policy, I, you know, since the Federal Reserve Board was created. It's, it's, it goes against, again, all traditional economic orthodoxy. And listen, this really started in 2017 when President Trump cut corporate taxes uh, and gave us a 5% peacetime budget deficit when employment was at 4.5% on the way to 4.1%. That had a really palpable uh, impact because when you have the person at the top say, mm, to, heck with, to heck with orthodoxy, to heck with tradition, we're going to do something that's off-piste. It has a signaling effect to everything else in society. Would we be where we are today with the Fed and the Treasury leaning on each other had we not started back in 2017? Would many media outlets be promoting narratives that they know are false simply because it plays to their audience. Would we have had the capital insurrection that we had on January 6th if everyone thought, well, he can do it, they can do it, why can't we? The world's crazy anyway. Uh, little manifestations of that show up in this world we have today, right? Meme stocks going up 1,500%. SPACs, SPACs, right? There was more money raised in SPACs this year in uh, the first four months than were raised in all of IPOs in 2020. So think about what that says. That says that investors were more willing to put money in companies where they had no idea what they're gonna invest in than they were into IPOs of known businesses that had business plans and were up and viable. So all of a sudden, there's a premium on the perceived scarcity of uncertainty. It's turned economic orthodoxy upside down. And that's why this meeting's so important because things are absolutely bat s crazy uh, and at some point, we have to say, okay, wait, slow down. We're going to get back in the lanes, and we're going to drive like we used to. Okay, so here's the, here's the real question. Right. If things are bad as crazy right. right now, and you are a trader, right. not necessarily even a long-term investor, but a trader. Let's just say you're, you're thinking about how to, where to put your money. I'd actually love to hear about it in the context of being a trader, but also actually as a long-term investor. What are you supposed to do in this environment? Well, I'm going to watch the Fed on Wednesday. Uh, if they treat these numbers, which were material events, they're very material, if they treat them with nonchalance, 
then I think it's just a green light to, 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 to bet heavily on every inflation trade. The idea that inflation tra is transitory, uh, to me is, is that, that one just doesn't work the way I see the world. So I look at $88 trillion of assets under management by asset managers. Of that, $670 billion are invested in commodity indices like uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. That's about three quarters of 1%. If I rewind just to 2011, when inflation was peaking at 3%, not CPI at 4.9, um, those same investors had 1.2% of their assets, which would imply today if they just got back to wait, another $400 billion of buying in commodity indices. And if you, certainly the impact models that we run would, would argue that GSER or BCOM would double or triple. So you've got, if I just look at where asset managers are, 60-40 types, the one thing that they should be invested in, they're not invested in, probably because they're hearing these assurances that inflation's transitory. So you've got this massive short, really, in the commodity complex. A, a massive short there. So that makes me think that, um, and I look at the balances in a variety of commodities and they're all so razor thin. They're all so razor thin. And this is just what happens if institutional money right. would get to where they should be, given the level of real rates. What happens if the Reddit crowd ever gets into commodities? God forbid if the bullies, the financial markets, ever were to take it on, for instance, like retail did back in the 70s. Explain what you mean by that. What I mean is, is that uh, commodity, commodities are finite supply, small markets, generally speaking. Uh, and if we ever get an inflationary psychology, like for instance, we did when I was uh, in my 20s, back in the 70s, if we ever get that again, uh, and if you ever got retail actually nervous about inflation, then uh, the one thing that leads inflation, which is commodity right. prices, or one of the it's the it's the easiest tautology there is. Those things can literally screen double or triple with no problem whatsoever. So you're but you're worried about the the Reddit crowd getting involved in commodities right now. No, I'm I'm saying that right now, I would be a lot. More, look, I'm I'm I think I'm the most conservative investor in the world. That's a hedge fund manager by definition hates risk, loves edges, loves competitive edges, does great reward risk trades. I would be really concerned about um, arguing that inflation's transitory right. when I know that you've got, uh, look, think about it. We have a just-in-time mentality. We have inventories at record low. We have demand screaming, and we have people who are really in, under-invested where they should be given the valuations right. of a variety of financial assets. You said if the, if the Fed doesn't make any moves this week, that it's going to be a green light. I, I, well, for me, it would be a green light. But the question is, so it, it may be a green light temporarily, but you're also suggesting that there's going to be a hard stop at some point, that, that it's going to create an even bigger problem. I, I, well, and so how, do you, how is a long-term investor think about that? Listen, the, the, I, I have maintained I'm so happy I don't have to run a pension fund. I don't know how you'd invest those assets when valuations for both uh, interest rates and stocks are at 
if you combine the two, they're, they're so overvalued. They're at 100-year highs. I don't, know, I don't know what you do. I know one thing I'd want to do is the one thing that can hurt that is inflation. I'd have as many inflation hedges on as I possibly could. I sit on, uh, you know, the investment committee of these not-for-profits, and um, it's really difficult to try to explain to some of the board members of our not-for-profits, gee, maybe now's not the best time to be invested in a variety of finance. Maybe we should be. Maybe we should own commodities at this stage of the game. Right. Can I just say one last thing? The, Dece- the December 2018 meeting. If you think about that meeting that uh, the Fed had, with pretty much the same board makeup, they had a lot of incoming data between that meeting and the one prior to that. Stock market was down 12%. GSCI was down. Commodities were down 20%. The credit markets were frozen. But they went on and hiked because they were locked in to this linear belief that I can have a forecast and that we should stay with it. The predictability was more important than reactivity. So I think they had the same, and seven months later, they had to reverse course and take that back. I think we're confronted with exactly the same situation right now. What do you make, and you mentioned it earlier, the, the meme stock phenomena, the, the social media-enabled group of people on Reddit and Wall Street Bets trading. I, I know you, you think that it's part of this larger, uh, larger infl- inflationary issue, I imagine, or stimulus, or I, I, but does it need to be stopped if you're Gary Gensler, if you're the Fed, if you're, how, what do you think of it? Listen, uh, people can have whatever reasons they want to invest. Again, I consider myself very, very, very conservative. Um, I would probably not be pursuing the investment thesis as they are. Uh, I don't really trade individual stocks that much. But I, for, for me, I want to have a sound investment thesis other than just necessarily running shorts in or necessarily doing things simply because the fact it's extraordinary and hasn't done before and it's working for a right. period of time. But uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm smart enough to, to, at this point in time, judge whether they're right or wrong. Uh, more power to them. I hope they succeed. Okay, let me ask you a different question, which is around Bitcoin. Because right. you last, uh, I want to say last spring, said, you know what, I'm getting into crypto for the first time. Again, I thought things were crazy then. I think they're crazy now. Bitcoin, listen, I like Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is math, and math has been around for thousands of years, and it, two plus two is gonna equal four, and it will for the next 2,000 years. So I like the idea of investing in something that's reliable, consistent, honest, and 100% certain. So Bitcoin has appealed to me because it's a way for me to invest in certainty, where again, I look at the difference between the Fed of 2013, the Fed of 2021, I, I'm going, how, how can this, do I want to have faith necessarily? I look at the difference between Trump and Biden. Do I want to have faith in that same reliability and consistency of human nature and the linear nature of human nature, which we know is anything but that? You like Bitcoin at these prices? I'm, I, listen. You got I, in what, oh, at about 10000 I I like Bitcoin is a portfolio diversifier. Everyone always asks me, what should I do with my portfolio? My employees say, I say, okay, listen, the only thing that I know for certain is I want to have 
5% in gold, 5% in Bitcoin, 5% in cash, 5% in commodities at this point in time. I don't know what I want to do with the other 80%. I want to wait and see what the Fed's going to do because what they do will have a big right. impact. Well, let me ask you about certainty when it relates to Bitcoin. I mean, look at what Elon, a, a tweet by Elon Musk over the weekend, arguably, and I know there's an argument about it, pushed it up over 10%. At one point, a couple months ago, it pushed it right. down. You know. so, so, so I have a lot of friends yep. who are heavily invested in crypto. More power to them. I have a defensive position for myself personally and my family that I, I, I just don't even look at anymore. I really don't look at it. I don't think of it, oh, wow, I made X today or I lost X today. For me, it's just a way of kind of foundationally looking at how do I protect my wealth through time. And I think it's a, a, a great diversifier. Right. Uh, and I look at it, again, I look at Bitcoin as a store of wealth. I looked at crypto as a store of wealth. Others will argue that this is a different ecosystem. It's transactional in nature. Right. It's going to be, th th those are great things. But That's you, not why. You made the argument, though, that it's math and that, not that it's risk-free, but in terms of the risks, we haven't talked about two risks, which are risks long on, your, on, on the just capital list, things around the environment, for example, uh, geopolitical risks, uh, whether the Chinese government or other governments decide to even allow it, whether the Fed at some point says, we're not doing this. What, right. how, do, how, do you, how do you peg those risks? So, again, we, it, it costs more to mine gold energy-wise than it does Bitcoin. Clearly, I'm concerned about the environmental impacts that Bitcoin have. If, it, if, I, was, if, I, was all, all, if I was king of the world, I'd ban Bitcoin mining. You would. Just, just because of the environmental impacts and then make the ecosystem figure out a way to do it without expanding the supply anymore at all. Right. That's what I would do. Um, but can I just say, I, I do think that we are in extraordinary times. I hope that we can, I hope that we'll mean revert, mean revert back to economic orthodoxy. I really do. I get nervous from a financial instability standpoint when the stock market is 220% of GDP. I get nervous uh, when I know that number was 45% higher than the 2000 bubble, and I know it's 90% higher than the 2007 top. So uh, if you just look at the amount of quantitative easing that we have planned just between now and December, and you think about the 60% correlation between the NASDAQ and the reserves that the Fed holds, you could argue the NASDAQ is going to go up 20% if we stay on this pace of $120 billion of Treasury purchases per month. You could argue that's where we're going to be uh, at year end. And so uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I don't know if continuing to increase valuations through monetization is the right and most prudent course right now. We want to talk about Robin Hood, but Becky's back at the studio, and she's got a question for you, Paul. Becky? Thanks, Andrew. Hey, Paul, just a quick question. If, if, if the Fed is so important and you're waiting to make decisions on 80% of your portfolio based on what they say, wh what would you do if they don't change their statement, if they kind of roll along its business as usual for this uh, most recent meeting? And what would you do if they were to say, okay, we are seeing signs of inflation, and maybe it's time for us to start to pull back on, pur on, on purchases? 
What would be the two things that you'd wind up doing if, if, in those, that binary well, situation? If, if, they, if they treat it with nonchalance, if they say we're on, we're on path, things are good, uh, then I would just go all in on the inflation, on the inflation trades. I'd probably buy commodities, buy crypto, buy gold. Uh, if, they, if they course correct, if they say we've got incoming data, we've accomplished our mission or we're on the way very rapidly to accomplishing our mission uh, on employment, then I, you know, you're, you're gonna get a taper tantrum. You're gonna get, you're gonna get a sell-off in fixed income. You're gonna get a correction in stocks. It doesn't necessarily mean it's over. In 2014, when they tapered, fixed income actually ended up rallying. The, the, the problem the Fed's got is that uh, right now, they're buying about 54% of this year's issuance. In 2013, they were buying 72%. You could argue that they're gonna actually, because they were such a bigger part of the market then, you could argue that they're actually going to have to um, taper quicker and hike quicker to have the same impact on treasury prices that they did back in 2014. We want to talk about Robin Hood, but before we do that, I have one, one other question, which is around taxes. Um, there's obviously a big question about corporate taxes, this 15% floor with the G7. There's also a question about taxes among billionaires, and you happen to be lucky enough to be one. Um, and there's a ProPublica story last week, and if you saw Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, there were certain years where they didn't pay anything in taxes. There was a piece over the weekend, uh, the New York Times, around private equity, and uh, this idea of moving uh, the management fee into carried interest. Do you think the tax policy should change and should change in a way that effectively taxes the billionaire class at much higher levels? Yes. You do? Absolutely. I, but it, I think you've got to look at, so the ones that they picked out have made all their money through owning stock in their companies. And it's made, they made all their money because of the fact that they haven't realized capital gains to a great extent in those companies. So it's, it's really, really difficult because you cannot, you cannot tax uh, unrealized capital gains because the volatility of them. So it's really difficult, but should, so what would you should, should, the, should the top 1% pay more? Absolutely. But so what would you do? <sighs> um, I, I need, next time I come on, I'll have a better answer. How about that? Okay, we'll, we'll take that. We'll follow up. Um, I have enough trouble trying to figure out what to do come Wednesday. Okay, let's talk about Wednesday because Robinhood has a big conference coming up. It's a big event for you, and I know it's something you've been looking forward to. What, what, what's, what's on tap? Well, it's the J.P. Morgan and Robinhood Investors Conference. We have it every year. I think this one, honestly, is the greatest of all time. And I say, the timing couldn't be better. The timing could not be better. We've got uh, Drucker Miller interviewing Kevin Warsh. We have Ray Dalio. Uh, I'm interviewing David Tepper, who's going to tell us where the markets are going to go, as well as whether Carolina, why the Carolina Panthers are going to get in the playoffs. We've got Kathy Wood. We have Don Fitzpatrick. We have Jay-Z. We have Ashton Kutcher. Do you know last year at our conference, every single best idea made money, including the shorts, and averaged a 30% return. So uh, this is one where you can go and get actionable ideas right. and make some money. And most importantly, this 
is the, the way we're going to rebuild New York, or the way we're going to bring this city back, is we're going to start in the trenches with the people who were hurt the most in this pandemic. So I hope everyone, even if you don't watch all of it, sign up, go to Robinhood.org, investors.robinhood.org or Robinhood.org, sign up, make the contribution. 100% of that money, because J.P. Morgan's paid for it, is going to go to help people in need. Paul Tudor Jones, thank you for spending the half hour with us. Appreciate it. It's always great seeing my friends. It's great to see you. Squawk Pod is back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Standby Pro-A. Pull wide six. Play Pro-A. Dissolve change music. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross-Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Also, give us a follow on Twitter, at Squawk CNBC. And let us know what you think of our content. Did you like all the Fed talk today? You want more or less Bitcoin? Let us know. Send your own squawk our way. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.